This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. We're here with Congressman Joe Garcia, who represents Miami, Florida's 26th Congressional District. Joe, thank you for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Joe, our audience is very engaged online. Could you please tell us the best way to reach you on Twitter and your website? All right. So our our um, congressional website uh, is garcia.house.gov, and that's our, our official congressional. And then my, my Twitter handle is Rep Joe Garcia. It's at Rep Joe Garcia. And both of those are, are pretty active. You can reach us there, and uh, we'll get back to you uh, uh, you can go to our Facebook, which is Congressman Joe Garcia, and that's pretty active, too. They're all sort of working with each other. And it's a great way to, to talk. And let me know what's going on. Tell me what you thought of this show. Tell me where you think I'm right. Tell me where I think I'm wrong. And uh, and I understand that you run your own Twitter account. We do. We do. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes I've got to let uh, people help me because we get so much. And so we, 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 we farm it uh, out. But most of the time, uh, we're trying to follow and, and hit it ourselves. Tell our listening audience a little bit about the new 26th Congressional District. Well, I am the southernmost congressman of the United States. I represent all of South Dade, which is uh, 8th Street South, uh, 87th Avenue West, and uh, what's north of US-1 until I hit Homestead, and then all the Florida Keys belong to me. And that... Uh, so it basically is the southernmost congressman of the country and, uh, and uh, represent what is um, Westchester, Kendall, the Redlands, Homestead, Richmond Heights, uh, parts of Goulds, Naranja, a little bit of Cutler Bay, uh, Homestead, Florida City, and then all the Florida Keys. That's a pretty large territory. How do you make it to all those events and, and visit all those constituents? Lots of miles. Lots of miles. We drive around an awful lot. Uh, my, my official residence is in Key West because I've got to go down there a lot. And so uh, in order to save money to the office, we, we, I rented a, a little apartment. Uh, and uh, it's just six blocks from um, um, Duval Street. So... Uh, I spend a little bit of time there just to see folks there. And uh, what we do is we, we try to break it up pretty evenly. I grew up in Westchester and spent a huge part of my life there. Uh, so I know that area really well. And, uh, you know, we just uh, this weekend we spent a, a great amount of time um, in the area of the Redlands. We were at the Asian Cultural Festival, just spent some time with the Thai ambassador who came to see us in Washington and uh, told us that he was coming down, so we wanted to receive him. And it's a, it's a great event. It's been going on for 24 years. You know, um, it's, it's an incredible place, and it's so diverse, right? Uh, it's a district that's 60%, 61%, 62% Hispanic, uh, 24% Anglo, 10% African American, and then it's got a, a few points uh, uh, Asian. And, uh, and uh, so it's, it's just phenomenal. And, and that diversity you know, is all over the area, right? So the northern part of the district is uh, very Hispanic, Cuban. Uh, the, the the Kendall area is very Latin American, South American, a lot of Colombians and uh, and Puerto Ricans and Caribbeans. Uh, then you got uh, the 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 rural part of the, the 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 district, which is that the Redlands Homestead. Most people don't know this is the most productive agricultural land in the state of Florida per acre, and uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to represent that and the farmers there, and it's just wonderful area. So and, it's a true melting pot. Oh, district. it is, it is. And then, it, then you got the Florida Keys, where I have commercial fishermen, where I have resorts, where I have people who wanted to disappear, and so there they are, uh, hiding in plain sight. Well, it sounds like you really have people from all over the world all congregated over the world. into one. Very tall district. It takes probably, what, four to five hours to drive Four to five hours. I drive it at least three times a month. In other words, uh, bow to stern. And, uh, and I, you know, I enjoy it. I mean, it, it's, it's a place I grew I always say about the Keys, I said it was a place I would have lived if I could figure out a legal way to make a living down there. Because uh, it's a <laughs> tough life. If you, you know, people in the Keys, are, um, um, you know, rents are very expensive. So people have to have two and three jobs. Um, you know, I love the Redlands area. I used to own a little farm in that area. So, uh, what did you grow on your farm? It, uh, longans. So longans are a type of, um, a lychee fruit, hard outside shell. You open it up, has this white, really wonderful sort of translucent, um, a fruit with a dark black seed in the middle. Uh, and you sort of chew the outside of it. Uh, away from it, uh, in 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 it's just phenomenal. It's a, it's a great tasting fruit. Uh, uh, we had a Japanese woman who literally um, she would do all the harvesting in the spring because we really didn't know enough about it uh, when we we got it. But it was a beautiful little, almost three acre farm. And uh, um, my former father father in law now now is retired on it. He loves being there every day, and so my my daughter plays on it a lot. And, and my niece and nephew, but it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful area. And, uh, you know, so you get a little bit of everything there, right? You get what is the beach life in the Keys. You get, uh, you know, the very rural, uh, sort of deep South, although it's deep South, but they grow, uh, um, uh, tropical fruit, right? So and sure. unlike almost any other place in the country, seasons go all year, right? Cause there, we, we don't have a winter, right? So, we're in circulation all year, right? There are fruits sometime of the year. We just came out of the um, squash uh, and uh, cucumber season just finished. Um, um, uh, the, you can, you're down there right now, and the avocado trees and the mango trees have their the, the, they're flowering, getting ready for to begin the fruits. Uh, so it's just all year long. It's phenomenal. A lot of little small farms, a lot of organic farms, which is one of the things – uh, that we're trying to do. And then, you, you know, you got areas like um, uh, Westchester, which are just, you know, families. It's huge transition. Right? Families and, and, and lot college of, students, like Florida International A lot of college students University. where you got FIU there, which is, you know, like the rock in the north there. And you've got their expansion, which is, you know, you, what they're going to call University City, which is basically the area of Sweetwater. And we've helped get uh, a federal funds to make sure we can have that transit hub that they're going to create there. You know, it's a great university that's coming in. Uh, and that is growing. When I was a kid, I, it was an empty airfield that my dad used to go to school there. That I, we, our home was a few blocks away from there. So that's where I spent a lot of my time. Um, you've got the Kendall area, which, you know, is already full out. But, you know, it's one of the one of those fantastic areas where you have, um, a, it's in essence, a bedroom community of the city, a suburb. But then you got little uh, businesses and, and, and things out there that are key. Um, uh, then you got Homestead, which is now, you know, doing gangbusters in Florida City, right? Uh, which is very rural, but it's where all the land is left and all the land that you can build on. And so they're having huge uh, neighborhoods come in. And, you know, you, you look at, if you know that area, you've got Roberts is here, which is a, a great uh, fruit uh, stand. And uh, if you look at all the area around Robert, it's already been platted for homes. So right. There's not very farm down there. 
Correct. There's uh, Glazer Organic Farms is in South Dade as well. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. Uh, they run the Coconut Grove uh, uh, Farmers Market every weekend on Saturdays. So yeah, I mean it's it's wonderful to have fresh produce that's locally grown, and most people don't realize it's all just grown thirty or forty miles to the south. Absolutely, you know, and then you've got places. Um, you know, the, the the fascinating thing about it is that um, a good friend of mine, um, uh, Leonard Abbas, um, he he is. Um, this, he used to own City National Bank, and he sold it. And he's the one that the President of the United States recognized in his first State of the Union about a guy who'd given a lot of money when he sold his company to his the employees. To his employees. Yeah. He gave, uh, what, 10% of the, the entire sale to his employees. It was employees. a huge chunk of change. And uh, But one of the things Leonard believes, and he's done, is he believes that all great cities have to have agricultural land nearby. And so he's uh, he's been buying large tracts of land and then leasing it back to farmers and making sure that the UDB doesn't move. He doesn't want it to move. He wants his land to stay Now, you mentioned something very important locally. The the UDB is the, uh, please explain it for our listening audience. Urban boundary line. Uh, the the, the ur- ur- urban development boundary line. Right, and, it's the urban development boundary. And, uh, and Set by the, the county. The county. And the idea is that thing that you can't build on the other side of this line. And uh, Well, as I understand it, you're allowed to build, what, uh, one home for every five acres of land? Right. If you're west of this urban development and boundary. And there are, there are different areas there, too. But uh, it's one of the things that... You know, I worry about particularly in the the Redlands area because, you know, you you see a lot of these farmers that have been at it a very long time, and 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 as they get out of it, people come and then just buy their farm, and they turn it into you know a, a retreat home or something like that. But they they get out of the business, and I well, I, there's been rampant speculation over the last decade or two, especially during the the real estate boom ten years ago. Which it's back. You know, we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of that because you're seeing it now. In the core of the city, right? Prices are just shooting up. You know, this, we live in this amazing place, right? Where the where the weather is perfect, uh, particularly this time of year. Um, uh, we also live in a place that's so international, right? That every time of the year, we're, we're the middle plane, right? So in in winter in Latin America, uh, people come here because and it's summer here. It's summer here, and and uh, and uh, when it's winter in the rest of the country, it's still summer here. So. You know, you get all these folks coming through here and it creates, now we've got a great cultural backdrop to that. You know, we've got an art scene that's spectacular. And so all that brings people to our community. And it's, of course, um, making our land values go up. Because, not not because we're, I mean, obviously there's a lot of South Floridians coming in, but of course the rest of the world has discovered this uh, f- wonderful place. Well, that's a great point you bring up. And I would say, furthermore, people from South America come here when it's raining when it's raining in their country and and I'm not talking about the weather I'm talking about when there's disturbances or problems and recently there's been a crisis in Venezuela that we reported on with a special report hashtag Venezuela SOS mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on the Venezuelan protests and hunger riots going on today well look I um, I'm I've got a lot of friends that are Venezuelan and we've watched Venezuela for many years as you uh, my guess, I've been involved with sort of human rights in Latin America as my work uh, on Cuba and as, uh, as someone who ran the Cuban-American National Foundation, the Cuban Exodus Relief Fund. And so I've watched um, Venezuela when Chavez came in. And uh, when Chavez first came in, uh, he accused me of trying to have him assassinated. Uh, 
you know, uh, so I got caught up in a little bit. You did bit a of, very poor job I did that. a I did a, 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 an, an incredibly, remarkably bad job of that. But the, the reality is that, um, that these folks, you know, our country has a very Eurocentric vision. And so you, we've been watching Kiev for the last uh, month or two. And we haven't been watching what's going on in Venezuela, which is in our backyard. I call it the, um, the inverse Monroe Doctrine. Because it is ours, we therefore don't care, right? Uh, if there's a fire, we may go back there with a hose, but it's, it's our backyard, right? Well, we- you know, Secretary of State John Kerry in November declared the Monroe Doctrine defunct. Yeah. He said that we're not going to intervene anymore in Latin America and that— Outside influences are fairly welcome to get involved, whereas it used to be considered the United States's "quote unquote" sphere of influence. Well, look, I, I don't doubt that it's our sphere, and and long term, uh, in the next thirty to forty years, the same sort of Eurocentric vision that America has today, I think, is going to shift markedly towards Latin America. First, because uh, of the na- na- the resources that are there, right? Human talent natural resources, and just growth opportunity, right? It's a, it's a sparsely populated area of the world. Uh, there are uh, tremendous market opportunities. American products are, are uh, of great value there. We doubled our exports uh, two years ago. So Latin America, I think the same way we look at Europe today, we're, we're going to look at Latin America 30, 40 years from now. And Miami will be on the leading edge of that, which is we look to our future and we see Latin America, right? Our business opportunities, our natural resource opportunities, our human capital opportunities. You see it here today, right? When in the past... You see it in Miami today. Exactly. All over the place. All over the place. People from Brazil, Argentina, Venezuela, Colombia, Panama, Costa Rica. All over the place. And and you see the search also for human capital, right? We're in the, we're in the past... We may have gone to New York to find someone, or we may have gone to California to find some artistic talent. Today, we find that artistic talent to the South. I can tell you that very many people, especially from Venezuela, because there's a lot of designers, like more so than many other countries from Venezuela, many of them have H-1B visas. And and that's another issue right. that I think you're on the forefront of, which is the immigration reform issue. Right. And, Please- it's, and it's how we addressed... Of Venezuela initially, right? Because, look, we don't want to play uh, Goliath to uh, Nicolas Maduro's very pathetic David, right? And so, what we, what I believe, and what I, what I said is, yeah, we've got to do everything we can to support the civil society, but we had to to look at what we have before us. And as you know, if you deal with the Venezuelan community, a huge portion of them are here to stay. They've been here for over a decade, and so they're on a work visa, but their families here because they've overstayed tourist visas. Or they're on a deferred deportation order because they can't go back to Venezuela. Or they're on a work visa for a business that no longer exists because the Maduro government took over that that business. Well, or, there's a Cuban Adjustment Act. Which, correct. Which that allows Cubans who uh, land in the United States to gain legal status and begin working almost immediately. Correct. But there's no a formal recognition for Venezuelans today who come here for political asylum, basically. Uh, is is there something that can well, be no, done? Well, no, there is a there is the, the, America is a signatory to all the treaties, which in essence say, if you are if you ask for asylum, you have a right unless your country is not a place where you you fear, and uh, um, the the construct around it uh, 
there are many Venezuelans who, who've received asylum. The problem is that, again, because our vision of Latin America is, well, there's not really much going on, we don't understand that there's been a, a, a very aggressive government against its civil society going on in Venezuela for a very long time. And many of the Venezuelans that are here were people uh, seeking uh, or fleeing persecution of their government. And so they have a right to ask for asylum, but our government has not been particularly generous in many cases in granting those asylums. Is there anything that the federal government can do today to formalize the process to make it easier for Venezuelans who are seeking political asylum to, well, we, to stay in the United States while this, this unrest is unfolding? Well, we initially put forward a bill, which was called the, the Venezuelan Liberty Act, which the idea was, look, we've got all these Venezuelans here. Um, some, went, some say upwards of, of several hundred thousand. Let's put a bill together to deal with all of them all at once when we deal with comprehensive immigration reform. As you know, I filed that bill, the Venezuelan Liberty Act. But as you also know, I am the author of the Democratic version of the Senate bill, which is H.R. 15, which is the comprehensive immigration bill in the House of Representatives. We have 197 co-sponsors. It's a bill that I think before the end of the year we're going to get done one way or another, uh, and it's very important to get done. And most Venezuelans would be part of that fix. Part um, of the greater part of the immigration greater reform. But last week I sent a letter to the president saying, look, let's give direction to Homeland Security, which is the, the one that handles the the processing of immigrants. The, the ICE. ICE. Right. Let's give them direction that Venezuelans are in fear of persecution, right? You've got to put it into context, right? And and we should relook at those cases and let them stay, those that are in those contexts, and give them a way forward because they're part of our community. I mean, you go to you go to Doral, you might as well be in a in a neighborhood of uh, Caracas. In a uh, you go to uh, uh, as Debbie Wasserman Schultz calls her district there, Westenzuela, right, uh, <laughs> where there are so many uh, Venezuelans. So the or, this or is Biscayne, or, that's or, another hotbed. Yeah, a hot. They're everywhere. Uh, and uh, sure, Miami and they're Beach. and yeah. exactly, and they're a great part of our community, right? This is a a very entrepreneurial, very, uh, very hardworking, very educated, exactly. With a very heavy, a heavy emphasis on design and engineering skills, That's which exactly is something right. that really is lacking in the city of Miami and in the Absolutely. state of Florida in general. And not that we lack for beauty queens, but they also come with beauty queens, which is very impressive. You know, <laughs> we, you know, you get one or two Miss Universes, you should get some extra credit uh, in the immigrant department, but uh, Venezuelans... And they're in a tough spot. And, right, uh, you know, that's why— uh, I, I was reading in the Huffington Post earlier today that there are government stores with fixed prices that have goods, and then private stores basically have nothing. Right, because the government is now controlling the importation and exportation and doesn't allow capital to flow out of the country, so only the government can buy it. And so what you're doing—you're you're having for the first time ever— um, in Venezuela, food shortages. And, you know, Mr. Maduro's government isn't falling apart because of anything else except his incompetence. And, uh, and the, the incompetence of the regime that he inherited. I mean— No, there's no question he, in about In 15 it. years of, of one uh, Chavista regime, Maduro's been around for maybe the last nine months officially of those? Yeah, yeah but— oh, A year, actually, a year— And this, this is week. one of the richest countries in Latin America in terms of natural resources, oil— you know, PDVSA, which used to be, which is the Venezuelan oil company, at one time was the seventh largest corporation on earth. It was we actually of, we interviewed the former uh, head of PDVSA last week. Okay, and and he was saying that they adopted some very very sensible policies to make public private partnerships to benefit the people of Venezuela. And what happened? Chavez undid them, and then 
you know, released him from his position and then eventually claimed that he was trying to aid the enemy with, you know, yeah. these sensible policies. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's insane and it's a, it's a, 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 a disaster. And, and that's why the U.S. government has to step in. And by the way, people are arriving every day at our airport. Uh, they've got visas, as you well know, Venezuelans get, um, many of them have those long-term visas, and they can't go back. So we're going to have to figure a way forward. And that was, you know, I met uh, with State Department uh, two weeks ago, National Security Council. I was in the White House last week, and it was all about this. Uh, and it's a very important thing. And I, I want to say this because I, I think it's pretty pathetic when people try to turn the Venezuelan suffering into part of the South Florida politics. I think it's beneath the dignity of the of, of my friends in the Republican Party. It's beneath the dignity of Democrats to try to do the same thing. Look, if there's something we have bipartisan understanding of in this community is when people come in fear of persecution, we, we've we been in many respects uh, generous to those who come here, and we've got to be more generous because we, we know uh, everyone in South Florida is in one form or another a refugee of somewhere else, whether you're a refugee of Fidel Castro, or 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 you're a refugee from Haiti, or you're a refugee from New York, right? You're coming to this incredible, uh, vibrant community, which, which I think, in many respects, while we we get knocked on it, it it is such a diverse and fantastic melting pot, uh, uh, and represents, as I began when we were talking about this, as as the new America, right? What is happening in South Florida is what is going to happen in almost every major urban center in the country, right? You're going to have a huge population shift uh, because of the incoming workers. It's, it's you know, in, in South Florida, it happened faster because you had a lot of middle class uh, and, and a lot of money that came with it. But it'll happen in L.A. in the next few years. It, it'll happen in, in, in San Antonio. It'll happen in Houston. It'll happen in Georgia. It'll happen in New York. It'll well, happen every, in Chicago. Every major American city at some point uh, was a melting pot city mm -hmm. or is today, and people don't really think of it that way. I mean, for example, I was in San Antonio last year during the NBA Finals, which mm -hmm. the Miami Heat won. Right. And uh, most of the, the San Antonians uh, have Mexican background or, you know, a, a lot of them. I mean, I would say like two-thirds, and they're Americans. Right. They've lived in America for decades, well, if not centuries. Well, you know, it's it's the it's the fame, you know, the, the great line... Uh, from the um, from Malcolm X, right? Uh, I, we didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. Well, the 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 truth is, many of the the, the historic Spanish Americans of the West, the, they didn't come to the United States. The United States came, came to, them. to them. Yeah, they they were they were there. I mean, um, you know, you look at um, um, former Senator Salazar from New Mexico. His family was a founding family of in Santa Fe, and. They were Spanish citizens, and uh, the, the Spanish-American War not only changed the border, but dispossessed them of their property uh, because they were Hispanic. And others came and claimed their land, and uh, it changed the dynamics. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tremendously rich and complex history, but uh, it's, 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 it's one of the wonderful things about living in South Florida is that you're, you're seeing that future change. And one of the, you know, I always say about South Florida is that, you know, You've got to want to be in in an adventurous place. If you want to be in a boring place, you're in the wrong. You move, move north. Yeah, uh, there, there's a lot of places that, that are, are boring that are much quieter <laughs> than Miami. That's why this is the only in Miami show. There you go, and no. not only in Podunk. Yeah, that's right. There's uh, no. not much to talk about there. And and the truth and the truth is, um, you know, I said uh, 
um, you know, the Anglo-Americans that live among us, uh, which is, you know, one of those few places where you actually point them out that way, that live among us are the most exciting, wonderful people you'll ever meet because they get up every day and they know it's going to be an adventure. You're going to pull up to a McDonald's and no one behind the counter will be able to speak English, right? And yet you'll somehow get your McDonald's happy meal and it'll be great. Yesterday I was in a McDonald's in my district. Uh, the, the owner was with me and he was showing the McDonald's and he introduced me to an employee of his that's worked for him for 25 years. This, is, this gentleman's an African-American who, who worked for McDonald's Corporation for 25 years and he bought his franchises. And then he introduced me to this woman and he says, here's Marta. Marta's been with me for 25 years. We've worked together. Marta can't speak a lick of English, right? <laughs> and Marta yeah. came over, hugged him. You know, she she's been working for him all this time. They they started laughing together. They can't, you know, they can't communicate because he can't speak Spanish. But you know, it's it's it, people who 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 enjoy that fun of it, right? The the fun, the challenge. This is a great place, and and uh, we we've not only turned the corner, we're headed in the right direction, uh, and um, we're about to see one of those great um, uh, Miami miracle moments where where you know the art. Uh, the sports, you know, we're, we're champions, uh, the art that's going to come here, the people that are going to come here, the movies, the all of it comes together around a, a fantastic community, and uh, we're all lucky to be part of it. That we are. Now, shifting gears, there's an issue that impacts one of the most important features of Miami and Florida in general, which is waterfront property. Anyone who has waterfront property is familiar with an insurance bill. Yep. And the insurance bills for windstorm coverage in the state of Florida already top the charts. They're Brutal. the most expensive in the country. Brutal. And uh, it's mostly provided by citizens. The citizens' uh, risk pool has actually spawned a, just a, a bunch of offshoots. So there's a bunch of small companies in Florida that try to compete. But there's one form of insurance that really has no other competition, and that's the National Flood Insurance Program, also known as NFIP. Now, in 2012, there was a reform bill passed known as Biggert Waters. That reform bill is causing insurance premiums to rise for anybody that's inside of a flood zone today, which I think covers quite a lot of your district, especially in the Florida Keys. Absolutely. And uh, it, it was a bill, you know, it's it's sort of like if you try to write um, an insurance policy right after you've had a, a major car wreck, right? You know, you're looking at all the bad things and then you work that into your actuarial policy right away. And, and then, with the mindset that was in Congress at the time, and I want to be clear, I wasn't in Congress when Bigger Water was passed. I'm not, I didn't yeah, it vote for it. was passed by the last before, Congress. Yeah, this is a part, this, this party was, was done was before I got It was passed by there. the Republican Congress. Correct. And, and, and by the way, um, back then they were adhering very strictly to what's called the Haystert Rule, which is that more, the majority of the majority must support a bill to be brought to the floor. Correct. So this was very much a partisan bill. It, it, initially it was, but eventually okay. uh, what, what got in there that's very partisan is the construct that no, there shouldn't be cross-subsidization. So when, when they wrote the policy, it, it sort of missed the point that the reason you have national flood insurance is— we're trying to 
amortize the risk, amortize the risk across a lot of classes. So you're spreading the risk out spreading the risk. To, to different parts of the country, to different classes of property, on different bodies of water. All at the all same over. time so that you can lower it. And the idea behind national with flood insurance was precisely that it would make housing affordable for everyone, right? The problem is that, and by the way, in Florida, it's worked perfectly well. We've paid four more times into flood insurance and what we've taken out. So even though we're in Hurricane Alley, we get hit all the time, we, we, we've been net uh, payers, uh, not recipients. So the, in other words, our responsibility to the flood insurance pool has been met, and there's money that we have, as Floridians have set aside already to cover some unknown future flood event. Correct. But then we had uh, Superstorm Sandy. And what that did is that a lot of people that weren't even in the system got paid out. How did that happen? Well, because, you know, they had small policies that had never happened, so the, their costs were so little. And so the payout was, you know, huge. $24 billion, I think, is the number where, where we're in debt. But what, what people don't see when they see that huge debt, what they don't see is the great benefit overall that us living by the water creates, right? The whole concept of coming to South Florida is that you're on the water. And so... Well, not only that, but it, it keeps areas from becoming blighted. Exactly. Like when there's a disaster, we can choose no, between you just, having that's exactly right. blight or, or reconstruction. Well, we saw this in Hurricane Anna, right? We saw yeah. this uh, people who got payouts and just got up and left, right? And uh, and then we had neighborhoods that sort of collapsed. And then it, you sure, know, in Naranja, that, that was an area that's that exactly absolutely right. collapsed. That's Nobody exactly remained. right. And, and, and the reason you have good insurance, both uh, windstorm and flood insurance, is so the next day you're building again, the economy's moving, people can hold on, and, and, and we save communities. And, 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 and these programs create jobs, uh, lots absolutely. of jobs. And not only do they create jobs, but they create future, they create commitment, they, 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 they make these uh, things better. And more importantly to all of it, every time you rebuild, you make better, right? So, uh, you know... I, you know, I, I love when people say, well, you know, I, th there's a house. To give you an example of this flood insurance, there's a house in our district which is over 50 years old, which just got its flood insurance. And the flood insurance, the house's mortgage was 190000 but its yearly insurance bill was $36,000 a year. Think about that. Thirty-six thousand dollars a year. A year for, for a home for a homeowner. For a homeowner, that's not the mortgage. It's just per year for the homeowner. Of course, it's absurd. Now this house has been there fifty years. So, if it's a house in the Keys, it's been hit by a hurricane at least seven times, right? Just by the very nature of it. And this is a, this is a house that was flat, right? Sure. And the reason it was flat is the guy who bought it was a mechanic, and his wife is in a wheelchair, and so. You know, if you go to the Keys, right, any house that's been, been built in the last 25, 30 years. They're all on stilts. They're all on stilts, right? right? But if you're in a wheelchair getting up to stilts, getting a on a difficult. ramp, yeah, right. you've got a, got a head start next block over. So the reality is he buys this house very perfectly. Now the bank is out of its money. He's out of his money because there's no way you can make this work. And so uh, my hope is, and I, I want to I be positive about this, is bigger's water the idea of sort of writing actuarial policies just for the policy as opposed to spreading the risk, which was the Republican uh, concept here, uh, we're going to be able to stop it next week. I think we're going to bring a bill to the floor. What uh, what bill number is that so we can track the 
I don't know what the final bill is because the okay. Republicans are going to drop their own bill. They, of course, want to hold to some of their constructs, but they, they've got so many Republicans that have signed on to our fixed bill in the House, and they want it to be their bill. So they're going to bring a bill that's probably going to put this off so that we can study it and fix it and hopefully put people back where they were. It's not as good as as a broad bill that uh, we we filed, but I think it'll it'll give us some time to fix this cross-subsidization issue, which is key to uh, to getting a policy that works. Now, you may not know, but I own a mortgage brokerage business, so I have many clients that are directly affected by these flood insurance problems. For example, I have one client who's an attorney and very unhappy because his flood insurance bill went from $2,400 a year to $8,000 a year this year, very unexpectedly. Is there something in the bill that can be done to help these homeowners who have been sh- shocked yeah. Absolutely shocked by, by the next year's bill. We, we hope so, right? Uh, we're, we're still waiting. I put together a bill which was much more comprehensive to fix this problem. Um, my, my hope is that the Republican bill that will be out next week is going to be um, not as good as what we put forward, but does a lot to put this off and to find a long-term fix for this. But the fix comes to going back to what the program was all about. The program was all about spreading risk, making sure that everybody was in a pool, and making sure everyone was protected. And uh, my hope is that in the in the next few days, the Republicans will at least stop these increases and then give us some time to really study how we, we do this long term. Now, you've talked about working with the House Republicans, and I think that anybody listening who's interested in politics knows that the last four years have not exactly been a hallmark for bipartisanship. However, Since the end of the government shutdown in October of 2013, it seems to me that there's been a break in the tension. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the bipartisan things that you're working on, not just the flood insurance bill, but other matters? Well, look, um, one of the things that we've tried to do since we got there, right, is I always say to friends that uh, there are always – two ways to do things. And it's not the right way and the, the left way. It's not the conservative way or the Republican way or the Democratic way. It's the right way or the wrong way. And most problems in life, uh, 99.9% of problems in life, uh, have no ideological bent, right? There's only one way to pay the wall. It's the right way, right? And uh, what we try to do all the time is find folks to work with that have a problem. And, um, you know, I, I found that when you come at problems that way, you find that uh, most people uh, want to work with you. Now, there's this deep ideological drive that finds itself today in, in, in a lot of the discourse in Washington. And I, I think it's, it's truly unfortunate because, I, I, you know, I'll engage in, 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 in banter with anyone about my, my ideological views, but they, they rarely move anything except uh, the people who agree with you, right? And so we, we do it all the time, right? Uh, sign up. For example, I, I believe in the Affordable Care Act. I, I am a believer. I know what it is to have someone with cancer that's close to me. I know what it is to have someone who doesn't have insurance be faced with these things. I also know that uh, the president didn't pick up ACA uh, from from God on the Mount, right? He actually, <clears throat> the president just copied what Mitt Romney implemented in Massachusetts, exactly. and it was an idea created by the Heritage Foundation 
And I know they haven't been up on the mountain with God. So the, the reality is that what we have to do is find ways to fix it. And so I do it all the time. I voted for a bunch of, of, of Republican fixes that I think would make health care better. But, uh, but what I do know is that if you approach things this way, you tend to argue less. Now, there are a, a bunch of opportunities to engage in some very important debates about the direction of our country's ideology. But most of the time, the bills that, uh, that we want to be looking at are things that fix things. So I'll give you a classic example, which we touched on earlier, which is comprehensive immigration reform. This is probably one is the, the civil rights issue of our time, more, more so because the, the gay issue sort of has it, we're watching it vanish before us. Right. We're watching. It, it, it's like a melting of a glacier. Exactly. almost. Like it exactly. was it's global warming, heavily frozen for, for decades. Exactly. And now it's gone. It's, it, it's it, almost it, gone. It's almost I mean, gone. It's, it's gone across the pond, but it's not. Exactly. It's not. No, but you're seeing yeah, it the, work the its way is, out. Right. And you're seeing people migrate very quickly on on this issue and i think immigration issue it's there's what 10 or 12 million people that are in the united states that's like three percent of the population and and they are and they're here illegally without papers exactly and you know the the other day i was with a debate with a colleague uh, and a republican colleague and she says well joe you know trying to because all these things are analogies right trying to make them simple and she says well joe if somebody broke into your house you'd want them punished and i said well it depends Somebody broke into my house, um, uh, took care of my grandmother, uh, tucked my kids in and took them to school, filled my refrigerator with fresh fruit and vegetables, cleaned the living room, then went outside, mowed the grass, cut the lawn, and put the roof on the house. I think I'd owe them money as opposed to want them to be punished. Well, not only they're that, an essential they're, they're paying element. rent too. Exactly. They're an essential element of our community. We trust them with our kids. We trust them with our families. We trust them with our food. And, and we need them. Right. For someone my age, I and I don't want to betray how old I am, but for someone my age to be able to retire 15 years from now, I not only need to legalize the 11 million that we're looking at, find them a pathway forward, but I probably need another 7 million in the next 15 years to somehow legally come into the system so that the system is rich enough to take care of of me, of Joe Garcia when I retire. And that's not bad. That's a good thing. In fact, we know that it's one of the good things about our economy, that we create jobs, we move forward, our, our population move forward. And so you look at this problem, which is deeply ideological to a portion of the Republican Party. right? It's not ideological to Eliana. It's not ideological to Mario, the two other uh, Republican congressmen from down here, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Frederica Wilson. They get it. Uh, but it's, it's deeply ideological to a portion of our country. And of course, the these sort of Tea Party guys are holding this issue hostage. And they're, they're putting in these terms of, well, we can't give amnesty uh, because it, well, here's what we know. We know that if we legalize these people, our economy in the first decade it gets over $170 billion of new revenue. In the next 10 years, so in the, in the first two decades, we get about $870 billion of new revenue. And, and, Mind you, doesn't that mean we can cut down on some of the enforcement costs? We can cut down on the enforcement costs. We can cut down on the debt costs. Let me give you an enforcement issue. You know what the safest city in America is? No. It's El Paso, Texas. Really? Do you know what the most dangerous city in the world is? Juarez, which is on the other side of the border, right? 
you know, the Republicans, by funding the border, have done the impossible. They proved communism can work, right? If you give everyone a good government job, crime disappears. Uh, but, but the reality is that isn't the point of it, right? So the average arrest rate for an INS officer, for an ICE officer on the El Paso border is three arrests a year, right? Because, of course, there's no one there to arrest. We, we put, so when we had the government shutdown, 50,000 people. We're, we're not working in El Paso. That's how many people work for the government in El Paso. We are spending money on the border in a crazy way. And, of course, it's having all sorts of impacts. So the classic impact is now we've seen drug move to, uh, to Puerto Rico, right? They can't get into the southern border, so they look for an American border in the Caribbean to use that as a jumping point. It's, it is, uh, well, it's kind of like trying to hold water in your hands and—, and- run a marathon that's exactly right because we still need these folks and the you know uh, the president's going to have deported uh, almost two million people now that's more deportations than any other president in history in fact through his five years he deported more people than bill clinton did in eight years and that george bush did in eight years and and when we think about these deportations we're talking about one in three of them are breaking up families these are fathers that leave in the morning, go to work, and they're never seen by their children but, again. But what's to gain by deporting people? Absolutely. What do we as a country gain? Absolutely nothing. I mean, that we, we can prove that we can uh, try to implement a law that doesn't work, or we can find a law, make the law work. And by the way, we need to enforce our borders. I'm not, I'm not an open borders kind of guy. But we need to do it in a smart and effective way. You know, I, you know, I, American Express, you can go get on, you know, get on an airline, fly to Thailand, get on a canoe, uh, go 20 miles out in, 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 their, in their marsh system, buy a coconut for 15 cents with your credit card, and American Express finds you. Yet we can't find Pedro when he crosses the border. It's silliness. And the reason we can't is because we don't want to. The reason is that we do want Pedro's work to be cheap so that we can undercut Peter. And, uh, and, uh, and, we want to put Peter in an uncomfortable position in competing for work. And that's absurd. What we need to do is have a system because not only is it the, the entry-level work, of the Fortune 500 companies in our country, uh, half were started by an immigrant or the son of an immigrant. Sergey Brin, the guy who started Google, son of an immigrant. And to not have this, we hurt ourselves. Let me give you a better uh, example. We have in the United States right now 120 thousand Chinese studying at our best universities. We have 90,000 Indians studying at our universities. We have 70,000 South Koreans studying. Now, they're studying at our best educational centers. Now, And, and after they're done, they get a one-year visa. And they're then, allowed to work here for one year to gain experience, and then they must depart. And they must depart, and all of them would love to stay. And, you know, to, to train our competition, because they're, you know, these guys are going to MIT, Harvard, Stanford, to train them and then not be able to take their their talent. You know, if you look at the um, the the Nobel uh, Prize winners in the last century, and the United States has the lion's share of winners, some of, one of the fascinating thing about a lot of those winners is they had an accent, right? We made them Americans, and if there is something that America does better than any other nation in the world is make Americans. You know, after after a generation here, you, you probably got a parade once a year where you, you get drunk on whatever local intoxicant was good for that, and you wear some color and you dance around. But in the end, what you are is American. What, what people quest to be, what the drive is, 
is to be part of a society that never is quite finished. Uh, what is amazing about our country is that our culture is anything but static. What is America today will not be America 20 years from now because it continues to evolve, it becomes better, and it uses the drive and the dream of the immigrant, which comes here, you know, to, to quote Brian De Palma's uh, um, a movie, uh, Scarface, these these. These people love America or the American dream with a vengeance. They come here to be American. And they then take everything that they think is wonderful about America. And then they add what they thought was good about their country. And, and they mesh it together. And it moves our country forward uh, so much more quickly in other places. You know, we, well, we're sitting in the shadow of the Freedom Tower, right. which is Miami's Ellis Island. Correct. Correct. And, you know, it's appalling to me that certain politicians in this state, even some who have advanced the cause of immigration reform, suddenly backtrack for political reasons. But isn't there a way that we can find pragmatism across the aisle as well? Well, look, I, I think we'll get there. I, I just think, you know, uh, xenophobia is 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 a, is a is a horrible thing. Right. And and. You know, 20, 30 years from now, we're going to look back at what some folks have been saying these days, right? The uh, the congressman who talked about the, uh, the the Mexicans having calves the size of cantaloupes from carrying 100-pound uh, bags of marijuana across the border uh, when he was talking about dreamers, right? When he was talking about valedictorian Hispanics. Uh, we're going to look at all this and we're going to see it for what it was. We're going to see it for just a sad, xenophobic diatribes the same way we look back at the declarations of Governor Wallace, or 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 uh, or, or other Southern nefarious characters of of the '60s that were overcome by time and and by understanding and by law, and, 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 and on I, the wrong side of history. And they're on the wrong side of history. And this, to, to in many respects, is probably the civil as we began the civil rights struggle of this moment. And I I'm a believer that we get this in South Florida. We, we've been through the bad part of it, and, and we're going to get through this, and we're going to get through it because in the end, to quote Churchill, sometimes the bitter end, America always does what's right, and we're going to do what's right here. Great. Well, I really appreciate you joining us on the show today, and I hope that your fixes for flood insurance, your fights for immigration reform, and all of the things that you're doing for your constituents here in South Florida work out for the best. Thank you.